0: Hey, this is Dan Messick, and you're listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Upstream will explore the people, culture, science, and of course the salmon from all across the Skeena watershed. Northwest BC is filled with diverse voices, communities, and economies that rely on a healthy watershed. So we'll dive into the work being done every day on the ground to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future. And that the Skeena stays wild. This is episode four, Salmon Science. But before we get to that, if you call Skeena Wild's headquarters in Terrace, BC, you might hear this.
1: Good morning, Skina Wild.
0: This is Nita. Officially, she is the office manager for Skeena Wild. Unofficially, she is so much more. Bookkeeper, resident hugger, keeper of the swag and one badass organizer of all things. She keeps Skina Wild on track and ensure the bills get paid. She's also spent majority of her life in the Skina region, and salmon in the river is as familiar to Nita as breathing air. You've experienced many Skina summers over your lifetime because you grew up in the region And you grew up in Kamano, as I understand it. Maybe, let's start there. Tell me a little bit about what you remember from growing up in Kamano.
1: Well, yeah, I was actually born here in Terrace. And we moved to Kamano, I think, when I was like seven or eight or something. And uh, yeah, it was a pretty amazing place to grow up. It was um, at its kind of peak when it was thriving. It had about 325 or 350 people that lived there, and a little school, and all the amenities, but really there was not a heck of a lot to do (laughs) there besides fishing and outdoors, and we were always, my parents were big for going out fishing on the river in the evenings, and we had an ocean boat, and go out for weekends, and my dad was a hunter, and we'd go mushroom picking, and I'm sure that's half of why I've ended up doing what I'm doing today, just because growing up there.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, what's your first memory of, you know, fishing or salmon um, or, you know, being out on the land? What do you remember the, the first kind of experience that you had?
1: Oh, my goodness. I, like I said, it was just, it's so ingrained in all my memories of childhood. Um, yeah, probably going out after supper in the evenings fishing on the river with my parents and just an hour just hours down in the estuary and at the Kamano river and exploring i had my own little boat and rowing around and checking things out and um i can't i don't really have a specific first salmon memory because it was just a way of life for us there so
0: nice that's awesome um well, maybe tell me, once you left Camano, where did you go? Was it straight to Terrace?
1: So high school only went to grade eight there, and I came out here and went to high school in Terrace, and then I took a few years, about eight years I went, and went to university for a couple years, traveled around to Australia, and worked different jobs, and lived in PG in Victoria, and the Lower Mainland, and... Just nowhere else really felt comfortable like home. And so I came back here for a holiday one time and just was like, why, why don't I just live here? <laughs> and then, of course, I ended up getting together with my husband, who's also from Terrace. And, yeah, we just decided to stay and raise our kids here. And, yeah, we love it.
0: Right on. Um, we talked about this uh, a few days ago. Uh, but you mentioned some of the work you were doing before you got into salmon conservation work. Maybe tell me a little bit about that. What did you do at university?
1: Well, I took a couple of years doing just general sciences, and then I took some years off to travel and stuff. And eventually I went back and I took a program, a technical program, called Environmental Protection Technology. And that was led me to work for a consultant doing groundwater sampling, air sampling, soil for contaminated sites. And then we would come up, the engineers would come up with the remediation um, systems for these sites. So I was, like, figuring out how to make these remediation systems work in these places and doing all the testing for them. And so I did that for about seven years, and then I started having kids. So I stopped.
0: And then eventually you ended up with Skeena Wild.
1: Yeah, so when my kids were in school, I thought, okay, it's time to get back out into the workforce. And uh, I saw an ad for Skeena Wild, and I thought, oh my God, that's like perfect. I could get back into doing what I originally wanted to do, you know, environmental protection, the love of the salmon and the outdoors, but I wouldn't actually have to work outside in the freezing rain (laughs) and the winter, Because the job was for office admin bookkeeping. And uh, I had actually no bookkeeping experience. But I went, applied, and yeah, they took a chance on me. And it's been the best job working here for Skeena Wild.
0: Yeah. But that's just like one part of what you do. Because you also do some community engagement and some events and whatnot. Uh, maybe tell me a little bit about why that is so important to you and why you like doing that. Cause it seems like you really do enjoy kind of getting out into the community, actually getting things done.
1: So that is probably my favorite part of Fino Wild. is I love just sharing with the community, our love of this place and people do love it here and they want to help and they want to do things. And, um, you know, with the, our volunteer program that we've set up, that's been so huge for me. I've wanted that for years because we always have people coming in, and I know that feeling of wanting to do something for the salmon and help this area and the rivers. And so it's so great to be able to enable that for people and our events that we put on. It's just great getting out and celebrating this area with people, talking to them about why they love it here. And it just it makes it easier to see how much everyone wants to work together to preserve what we already have.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Why do you love so much working with Skeena Wild? It's been a a number of years now that you've been the, uh, I guess, the the driver of the boat, so to speak, in certain ways. You make sure that everything in the office is kept on track. You keep us all on track. Um, But. You know, why have you stuck around? What is that that you love so much about salmon conservation that just keeps you going?
1: Um well, yeah, I've been here since two thousand and twelve, and I think honestly, it's just because I love being able to come to work and feel like I am actually contributing to something i'm I'm doing something worthwhile. i I do honestly think that the salmon are in a better position today because of what Skeena Wild is doing. So that definitely makes it easy to come to work because I love what I love our our premise here of what's going on. The using the science and being rational and you know considering all parts of our community. That I mean, my friends and neighbors and family. We all have to work, and so. I love what Skeena Wild is doing by taking that aspect of our community and also trying to preserve what we already have with the salmon, working together, everyone working together. So it it makes it easy. And plus the team here at Skeena Wild is just so great. And, yeah, it's just a really awesome place to be able to come to work and do what I love and with people that are fantastic. The Skeena region is wild. It's rugged, it's untamed, it's natural, it's amazing, it's awe-inspiring. And I actually, that's another part of my job that I love, is that I get, because I'm in the office all the time, we get people in coming in to ask us about fishing or regulations or to buy our swag, and uh, they are always reminding me of what an amazing place this is, because you do kind of forget, right? We see it day in day out. But people are always like, oh, you have no idea like the rivers that we that we have back home. They're dammed, they're hatcheries, they're polluted, they're so it is it's a good reminder of what we have. But I'm always inspired every time, I grew up here, go out all the time, and still, when Ryan and I take the kids out on the boat, like, we'll go up the exchangics or cassocks, and the way that the mountains, just the sheer size of the mountains running into the water and the trees, the size of the trees and the green hillsides and the animals, the Skeena is just really such a diverse, wild place to be.
0: If you like what you’re hearing and want to hear more about the Skino watershed, salmon, science and how communities are working together to ensure a future for all the creatures that call the Skino home, then download the upstream podcast. Check us out at Skinowild.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Science and research is one of the pillars of the work Skino Wild has embarked on over the last 15 years. Now more than ever, we need good, solid, quantifiable data that will help us better understand what is happening to our planet, the environments in which we live, and how a changing climate impacts to habitat and human interactions are affecting Skeena salmon. There are dozens of scientists and biologists working within the Skina region on a number of issues that have direct and indirect consequences for salmon and ultimately humans. At Skeena Wild, we have a number of scientists working to deepen our understanding of the world around us. But we also work with several partners to ensure the best available science is conducted on a regular basis to continue deepening that knowledge of wild Skeena salmon. One of those amazing people doing the work is Allison Oliver. She's an aquatic ecologist with the Skeena Fisheries Commission. She's worked extensively throughout the Skeena Watershed over the last several years and knows just how critical natural spaces and salmon are for everyone in this part of the world. This interview was recorded earlier this year.
2: My name is Allison Oliver. Uh, I live in the Kispiox Valley uh, outside of
0: Hazelton and I'm an aquatic ecologist. Allison, it's nice to, nice to see you again. Yeah, good uh, to see you. It's been a little while. Uh, crazy year, but here we are. Um, and like I was saying, I guess about a year ago, um, uh, you know, looking at emails, we kind of chatted about some of this and, you know, what's going on with salmon and wanting to talk more about it and, and the science work. But I guess before we get there, I guess, tell me a little bit about how you ended up in the Skeena.
2: Oh, geez. Um, well, I, I'm from the U.S. originally. I. Uh, finished a graduate school program in California and ended up taking a postdoc that was based out of um, the Central Coast. So it was on Calvert Island with the Hakai Institute. And so I moved to Canada in 2000 and, ooh, 2012, I believe, <clears throat> for that. And, um, and I, I worked there for a pretty, it was a pretty long postdoc, four, four and a half years. And then my partner uh, actually ended up getting work up here and I had been up here before and, and absolutely loved it but kind of couldn't figure out a way to get here because of what I was working on and I just didn't, I was, you know, I didn't know how to make the leap. So when he got the position, I, I followed him basically and uh, yeah, the rest is history. So we, we're in the Kispiox Valley um, and just absolutely love it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess maybe tell me a little bit more. Like, what do you love about it? Because there's so many reasons why people end up here, which is funny. Uh, usually, it's it's the the stories I've heard anyway. I've come, I came for work, which was which was my issue. Uh, the car or the motorcycle broke down, and this is where it broke <laughs> down, and I just ended up staying. And then for love, you oh, know. Right. And so so, which I also I also have a little bit of that too. Um, but I guess, what are some of the reasons why you wanted to stay? What is it about this place that just kind of captures you? I remember
2: when I first moved up here, I went on a hike in the bush, and I climbed to the top of this, this I guess you'd call it a mountain that's out in the Kispiox Valley, and I sat at the top of it, and and I couldn't hear a single thing that had to do with humans. Like, I heard birds, I heard the wind, and I sat there for five, 10 minutes maybe, and never heard a human noise. And it was just like such a calming, nice feeling. I mean, not that I don't like people, but <laughs> but it was just like, wow, like this is amazing. Like, you know, you how many places can you do that these days where you can, you know, still be within a you know, reasonable driving amount of, t- amount of driving time to a grocery store mm-hmm. and be able to get out into the wilderness like that so easily and just like be in nature. So that, w- that was part of it. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't the mosquitoes, definitely uh, don't have any role to play in this. I <laughs> would rather leave for that month of June actually. Um, but, uh, but just, yeah, the, really for me it was the, the outdoors, the um, you know all of the all of the stuff that's here that you have to work so hard to see in other places, and uh, and just you know oftentimes um, being able to you know enjoy the type of lifestyle that's a little bit more rural, um, grow your own food, mm. um, you know. You know, or or go to your neighbors for food like that sort of sustainability factor. I mm-hmm. really enjoyed too. It's, uh, you know, I tried to tried to live like that in in more urban places, and um and it's it's a lot harder actually. Um, so that was appealing as well. I liked that. Um, yeah, those are the, probably the main reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the access from here, you know to the other kind of wild places in the north is phenomenal. To be able to go up north or to the coast, yeah. um, you really can't beat it, so. Yeah.
0: Was there any, you know, like the work you do now, uh, a lot of it is, is you know, focused or has some sort of connection to salmon, obviously. But was there any anything like that in your childhood, like growing up in California? You know, they have some pretty crazy rivers down there as well, the Columbia, um, you know, so was there any connection to that wilderness or that kind of lifestyle or nature um, that was instilled in you at an early age? hmm
2: yeah, well, my, when I was young, you know, uh, my family, we used to do a lot of outdoor stuff, um, camping, uh, I started fishing with my dad when I was probably like five or six, fly fishing for trout and stuff like that, um, mostly in the mountains in the Sierra Nevada. And, and a little bit in the Rockies. Um, but we, you know, there's some pretty legendary salmon systems in California. And uh, and unfortunately, a lot of them, you know, have, have gone, you know, gone uh, uh, the way of the, I wanna say the way of the dodo, but they're not totally extinct yet. They're just, uh, They've, they're just nothing compared to what they used to be um, but I do remember at a fairly young age being on one of those systems in the a um, uh, tributary to the Sacramento River and seeing Chinook uh, for for the first time when I was young and I and I just remember like being completely in awe and also pretty disgusted because they were like spawned out and you know dying but the fact that you know these I was totally in awe by the fact that these these animals could find their way home, like from where they were born. Like as a little kid, I remembered that was just like mind blowing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I wouldn't say that I was like, you know, from that point on I was uh, going to study rivers and fish, but it was definitely something that I, I still remember to this day, really stuck in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we did lots of outdoor stuff, um, a lot of camping, a lot of hiking, um, and i lived uh i lived in the mountains most of my life once i left home you know for college and and through my kind of 20s and 30s i I was i was a mountain person so yeah i've definitely done a lot of that and and i i guess i'll credit my dad a lot to like getting me on the water Mm -hmm. he was he he was one of the first people that took me out on the
0: river to go fishing and stuff Mm -hmm. like that so Yeah. yeah So I guess you know once you got up here and you know started to get a lay of the land, so to speak, and 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 make it to to these rivers, make it to these big wild rivers that we that largely are still intact, um, that are filled with you know salmon um, uh, for a good portion of the year, you know kind of what was going through your mind the first time that you went down to the river, whether it was the Kispiox or the Skeena or the Bulkley, um, and you and you and you went fishing or you saw you know, fish here, salmon here in the Skeena, what was kind of going through your mind? Was there some flashes of, you know, childhood and seeing that for the first time? Or was this something completely new and amazing? I remember thinking like, fishing isn't that hard. <laughs> I was like,
2: oh man, fishing's so much easier when there's fish around. <laughs> um, Cause I mean, what I, you know, I started when I first, I think I first went steelheading in California, um, and, and you know, to be to be clear, Northern California, the rivers up there have lots of fish, like the, the northern part of the state, they have a lot of fish, they have a lot of hatcheries too, but they do have a lot of fish, and pound for pound, they're um, more productive, a lot of those systems than, than these up north. Um, but, uh, but you know, the, 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 the fishing up here when it's good, I mean, yeah, you're like, oh, I'm the best, you think you're like the best angler out there, but it's, (laughs) but you know, I challenge those people to go down to Oregon, California, Washington when the, when times are tough and see how great of a fisherman they are.
0: (laughs) The the fish are doing most of the work around these
2: birds. I mean, it's phenomenal. Uh, Yeah, it was, it was, uh, the first uh, river I spent time on up here was the Maurice and, and, and it was just, it wasn't even really, you know, totally about the fish, it was just the river itself and the mountains and everything. Yeah. I mean,
0: it was awesome. yeah yeah um, So now, I guess, you know, moving forward. So let's talk a little bit about your work with the commission, um, because in recent years, we've seen some hard times, you know, more or less for um, not only salmon, but also, you know, people who are connected to salmon uh, for First Nations, for, you know, local, other local communities, um, and, and same ways for, for the economy, you know, for a lot of uh, lodges and sport fishers, commercially. So all around, it's it's been a bit of a, of a crisis, but, you know, you're doing some work that's trying to, you know, ensure a long-term sustainability as best as we, as we possibly can can have for Skeena salmon. So tell me a little bit about your work with the Skeena Fisheries Commission.
2: So the Skeena Fisheries Commission, just for a little bit of background on who, what the Skeena Fisheries Commission is, is uh, an Aboriginal um, resource management group that's um, funded through DFO as, a, it's, as an, an AROM organization, which is an Aboriginal aquatic resource and oceans management group, that the intention is to provide administrative, technical and scientific capacity for um, a, a, a aquatic resource um, work, so we work. Uh, our, our organization is um, is a, a kind of an umbrella organization of three different nations in the Skeena. Um, so we uh, we represent. Uh, well, I shouldn't say we represent. We we work with the Gitsan, the Gitn'aw, and the Wet'suwet'en and we have commissioners that kind of guide the direction of. The Skeena Fisheries Commission, uh, from each of those respective um, uh, First Nations, from their fisheries organizations that sit on our 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 board. Um, so the work that I do with that group, um, we have a we have a, a like a, a fairly small staff, but we do kind of a variety of different types of work. The work I do is largely focused on um, aquatic ecology, so it's uh, thinking about um, work that can kind of Help, aid, um, or guide management recommendations in terms of fresh water watersheds um, and how they, those things might segue with with fish. Um, so yeah, we we've got uh, you know a bunch of programs that are kind of looking at um, trying to better understand what we need to do it, to you know to better conserve our fisheries. And and a lot of the programming that I'm working on is really kind of looking at habitat. Um, we've got some programs that some of my colleagues run that are like a little bit more kind of focused on s- counting fish and doing stock assessment, more related types of stuff. But my my, my work is mostly all kind of habitat focused. And, uh, and you know, looking at what components of the watersheds in in the different areas where we work um, are critical to sustaining healthy populations of fish into the future because you know we're really lucky up here we have like pretty intact ecosystems as far as you know relatively goes i mean they have been impacted there's a kind of a large range of um, disturbances that have that have happened here and some watersheds have had more of that than others but but in for the most part we don't have large hydropower you know we don't have a massive urbanization or massive agriculture um, so these fish like they they've got habitats that are going to give them a fighting chance in terms of you know how they're going to make it in the future but we have to make sure that those habitats. Stay, that, stay there, mm-hmm. and, and that they provide enough, uh, you know, flexibility for these fish to be able to adapt when, when times get tough. Um, and so we have to understand what are the important parts of the watershed for these sorts of things, like what do we need to protect to keep things like hydrologic function intact, things like thermal regimes, so like the water temperature intact, um, where might fish decide to move to, if things like glaciers recede and we start getting um, you know waters that used to be really cold and turbid, now all of a sudden it's not as cold and it's not as cloudy and it's a better place for fish to be. you know can we can we predict where those are going to be? and and then we need to take all of that information and and say, okay, so what what of this stuff is like absolutely critical that we can we, we we can't allow anybody to be able to come in here and and, and change it because it's so important and it, or it may be so important and so that proactive piece that I think is cr- the key um, and is often you know pretty lacking in resource management um, so yeah the, and, and we've got a bunch of different programs that are doing a variety of things looking at um, yeah a lot of these different components of watershed function and how it what the role of that function is and Maintaining fish populations and um, and uh, yeah and it, and hopefully we'll be getting some pretty exciting results out in the near future.
0: I guess what are some of the you know the most critical places critical habitat um, that you've seen and, and also uh, I guess from what your experience has been in the last almost 10 years you know here um, you know what's your what's your major concern what are what is what are you seeing out there that is a major concern to you.
2: Yeah. So the, the, the big things I think, um, that, that, uh, we need to be paying attention to are if, especially in light of, you know, consider all of this under the lens of climate change, because we've got to be thinking that way. Um, the big things are, you know, is the, is the drainage intact? Do you have, do you have enough riparian to provide shading and stability of the stream banks? Do you, are, are you, do you have enough trees in the catchment to retain enough water so that you don't lose all of your flows late into the summer? Um, things like development and key headwater locations. So if you've got glaciers that are retreating and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden a, a you know, valuable, ore body pops up there, um, are we going to allow mining to happen in those places if that's a spot that we think potentially salmon may, may utilize or will impact salmon. Um, so it's thinking about like where, where can we, you know, uh, where can we use the land in a way and where can we use the land and how can we use the land in a way that's going to be sustainable to maintain these functions and these, pr- preserve these critical locations um, now, but also going forward. Um, so I think, uh, I think around here in terms of habitat, the main issues are you know, land disturbance, whether, whatever that may be, whether it's forestry or mining or urbanization or agriculture and um and then uh uh just water like do where do we have enough water and is it you know can we keep that water quality high Mm -hmm. um if you know if you've got a catchment that's you know has a glacial source and then you go in and, and and that's feeding cold water into a salmon system and then you go in and you You know do a bunch of development at the headwaters and now that cold water source that's so important to salmon is potentially contaminated um you know that's not going to be great Mm -hmm. for for trying to give the salmon a break um when they're you know faced with a lot of other challenges which they may they may be in the future
0: yeah um i guess tell me uh, you're just about to head out into the field you know, for another season of, of uh, field work and mm-hmm. data collection. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what what uh, what are you doing? You know, what are you going out there? I mean, every year is kind of a little bit different. Things shift and change. So what's uh, what's on the menu?
2: Yeah, this um, this year we've got a ton of projects. It's super busy. Um, I feel like I say that every year though, but this year's especially busy. Um, this, this week um, I headed I'm headed up to Meziadin Lake to work with um, the Getanyao on um, a bioenergetics uh, study that's looking at uh, food resources for juvenile sockeye in Meziaon Lake mm-hmm. uh, so we're going to be doing a bunch of work at night to uh, understand the kind of the food web up there and um, the, the implications for lake capacity, like how much lake, how, ma- how many fish can that lake hold in terms of, like, what, how much food is in there, really, for the baby fish. Um, and then part of that project uh, also is looking at the streams around and Lake and kind of trying to better understand uh, the role that, that, that glaciers have and um, the chemistry and kind of physical properties of those streams and what that means for the lake function itself. Thanks. Yeah, so that's this week, and then um, and that's ongoing throughout the summer, and then we've got, um, I've got a few other projects that'll get started in, probably, yeah, the next month or so. Um, pretty large project with the Get Sand Watershed Authorities that's um, looking at temperature, uh, temperature regimes in a huge part of the middle and upper Skeena. Pretty much all most of the get sand territory, um, trying to better understand kind of um, how watersheds are influencing stream temperatures and uh, what drivers within the landscape might be um, controlling some of that. So then we can identify like critical zones that are providing cold water, and mm-hmm. and that's been this is year, uh, this is year two two of that study. Yeah. So yeah, and it's a three to five year study. Um, so we've got that, um, I've got uh, uh, some work with Wet'suwet'en, looking at Maurice Lake, doing some uh, work on the lake there to uh, kind of understand, uh, kind of re-establish a baseline for um, the the kind of function of that lake and understanding what's happening there. There's also glaciers there, so that's, that's um, something we're trying to get a better handle on Mm -hmm. um, the role of the glaciers in Maurice Um, and I've got a a project uh, a a really cool project that um, is just wrapping up so I don't have a lot of field work on it this year but it's worth mentioning because it was pretty neat looking at um, working down in the lower river with um, Lacqualams and Metlakatla and we were looking at the sources of carbon um, so carbon is like the kind of energy that fuels the food web in the estuary um, looking at the sources of that carbon and um, what that carbon's made out of like the actual molecular structure oh, wow. and you can use that information to tell you like uh, how easily utilize like how easily it is to utilize that energy um, within the food web you can also look at things like sources of contamination and um, pathways of that energy and like how it might change if you end up like if you impact it because you like develop that area or something like that so that that work is kind of the field the main field work for that's wrapping up so we're kind of now starting to get into the data analysis um but it's really yeah that's a really cool project so yeah and there's some other stuff kind of on the go so it's pretty busy nice
0: um you know so many questions there i guess quickly uh, why up at Mezi- Meziadon, why at night do you have to do that work? Yeah,
2: uh, so at, it's because the organisms that we're looking at, they migrate um, on a daily basis. So they will, uh, this, is, this is the zooplankton, which are like the crustaceans and other little, uh, you know, uh, shrimp-like critters that, um, that the fish eat, they migrate uh, daily. So they'll, you know, they'll go down deeper during the day and then they come up and kind of spread out through the water column more at night and the fish do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we want to sample uh, the zooplankton and the fish, we have to and, and uh, you know, and make sure that we're kind of capturing a representative sample of those organisms. We want to do it at night when they're kind of spread out and more near the surface. Cool. Yeah. So we have to do we, we have to generally we start about an hour after dark. Which means, you know, middle of the summer, it's pretty late.
0: And you just like scoop them up with a with a net, or what, what yeah. are you doing?
2: <laughs> yeah, we use a um, we use a, a 50 centimeter by 200 centimeter net, like uh, it's like on a ring, and we lower it um, out of the boat with a winch, and then and then haul it back up and and catch a
0: bunch of stuff and
2: yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's it's uh, you actually get a lot
0: of cool stuff. I bet, mm-hmm. I bet. Mm-hmm. Um, and Meziadin is such an interesting place and you know obviously the beauty. Um, but again, it's kind of that, that confluence that uh, in a lot of ways we don't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the other question on all of this that you're working on, like what's the importance of data? You know we, we do have this overarching issue of climate change. And, and it's like, it, no matter what we do, we just need to know more. We need to know more so that we can plan better, we can manage better. So to you as, as being a scientist, being the one collecting this data, uh, what's the importance? How do you see this? Why is it so important to do this work? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, it's it's hard to calibrate where you're at if you don't have a, a, a time series of data to kind of show you where you've been. and. In a lot of systems, um, you know, there, there, and this is true in the ski net. There were kind of pulses of information collected when either the, you know, the funding was was hot, or they had some initiative going on. Um, and then there's very, very large gaps. So um, we don't actually, for, for most of the systems, and I'm thinking specifically about lakes here in this region. Um, there's pretty large gaps in our understanding of what's currently happening, and it's pretty well documented, um, kind of at a global scale, that lakes are really good sentinels of of change. Um, so, you know, at the at, at the minimum, we need to understand where we're at now, so that we can kind of see where we're going um, as you know, as we we try different management approaches as. We are faced with things like you know uh, warmer, drier summers, or you know bigger flows in the fall, or whatever it is. Um, uh, or as we you know try to recover individual stocks, mm-hmm. you know if we don't know what their freshwater limitations are, um, we you know we may not be applying the right technique or the right tool to try to recover that population. So mm-hmm. th- there's a variety of reasons. Um, you know there's also there's also like from a less applied perspective there's just the kind of science the the like you know knowing to know um which is a much more like kind of academic often academic approach but generally those things lead to applied situ applied scenarios um the questions that are asked in those types of projects mm-hmm. so um we don't have really a lot of those going on right now but i you know i don't I, I'm definitely not going to poo poo science just for the sake of science. Like yeah. there's value in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but for up here, it's really about like understanding in understanding, you know, the limitations to fresh water, like for fish and, uh, the kind of stressors that are happening out there and being able to track them because yeah. you can't know if you're improving a situation unless you, You know have a quantifiable way to show that Mm -hmm. so you need the data in order to do that and a lot of people get really frustrated by that they're like why do we need to collect more data like we need to just do stuff Mm -hmm. and I'm like well that's you know that's important too but how do you know if what you're doing is correct if you don't if you don't measure it if you don't if you're not trying to you know measure it in some way Um, because you know humans have definitely been guilty of that you know trying things and and they end up not being, you know, not quite getting the result that they, mm-hmm. they wanted. So yeah. Y- yeah, you have to kind of follow these
0: things, but. Yeah. And figuring that out later and then having to adjust and yeah. collect more data yeah. and try yeah. another approach. Yeah. Um, all the while, you know, we're kind of wasting time in some cases, especially with climate change. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you have a bit of a, of a interesting position right now. You have a, an ambassadorship um, that's focused on uh, talking about and communicating um, the science around climate change. So tell me a little bit about your ambassadorship and and you know why why is this something that you wanted to take on and, and what do you hope the outcome is?
2: Yeah, it's yeah, it's really cool. It's um so it's a program um, through the American Fisheries Society, um, AFS, which is the <clears throat> world's largest and oldest. Um, Uh, organization dedicated to advancing fisheries science and, and, um, and conservation, and they, they put together this program to kind of try to provide the tools and skills to aquatic scientists to be able to better communicate, um, complicated issues of climate change and fisheries. Um, and, and, uh, you know so we spend a lot of time ta- it's 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 quite a lot of work actually we spend a lot of time um you know practicing our you know various skills that we're taught and we have a lot of speakers that come in and you know, virtually um we'll we'll talk about ways of communicating and um and it's it's very it's fascinating because science communication is really hard <laughs> especially when you have you know topics that you might be really interested in but you know other people just you know like i find like for me um carbon is, often is like the death word like if i bring up if i say carbon people are just instantly out so <laughs> so that's the one that you know trying to figure out how to better but you know but this stuff is important and it's super interesting um but you have to know how to talk about it in the right way and you have to know how to talk about it in the right way to different types of people um because not everybody learns the same not everybody you know sees the world through the same lens and and so if you want to kind of make an impact and make people uh you know see the importance in this stuff then you have to figure out a way to to reach them and and that's all about communication so yeah Yeah. yeah, it's a really it's a really cool program and it's a super diverse group of people Um, most of them are in the states but there's a few canadians and um and there's a few folks in europe Um, but it's the first year, so I think they're gonna expand it more um, going forward. But yeah, it's been pretty neat. So, you know, like we we're kind of only in the very beginning of the program, it's a few years long. And um, so we're just kind of starting to to work on skills. And I've, so far I've picked like kind of the easier, um, my easier research topics to talk about, you know, everybody, it's easy to tell people that like fish don't like warm water and they can get it, you know, but it's harder to explain why like a molecule of carbon depending on what the molecular structure is, you know, why, why would a bacteria, when a bacteria eats that, does that matter to fish? Like that's a lot more <laughs> complicated <laughs> in a climate change
0: scenario. So what is your hope? for, you know, the future of of salmon. I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, you know, about maybe not going fishing or maybe limiting the amount of fishing that we do. Um, But I'm really curious to ask you two things. One, in the work that you do and what you've seen in the last 10 years here, could you imagine a future without Skeena salmon? Um,
2: Could I imagine it? yes do i want to imagine it no um i think it would be a it would be a travesty for the planet if that were to happen um but i think that there's a lot of opportunity here to not go that way um and and i think this region is uniquely poised in that regard um that they're you know salmon are really adaptable um they, they have some, you know, plasticity, you know, flexibility built into their, their DNA that will allow them to um, capitalize, if you want to use that word, um, on the available habitat if, if, if the habitat's there. So um, we've got the opportunity to, you know, keep these systems in, in, a, in a good place for fish. But it's like you said, you know, it's not just about the habitat in the Skeena. It's also about all of the other things that those fish have to go through from the moment they're born until the moment they you know, die, which is, you know, the ocean. There's a lot of stuff happening in the ocean. We won't even get into that. Um, the fisheries, the, all the different fisheries. Um, there's predators, there's disease, there's all of these things that these fish you know for their entire since since they've been on this planet have dealt with um but the rate of change of some of these things is accelerated and that's what they can't handle so given the opportunities um, and a little bit of control on human part to try to do things more sustainably Um, Maybe that means some years, you know, people are going to hate this, but maybe (laughs) maybe that means some years you don't get to fish or you have to fish a lot less. Or maybe it means in some systems you don't get to fish anymore at all. Um, But the fish will come back if you give them the opportunity to. Um, But it's not just one thing. It's not just fishing. It's not just you know the rivers being too warm it's not just the ocean being too warm or there being too many sea lions or whatever it is it's all of these things combined Um, but where we do have opportunity to make a big difference i think in the skeena especially we have a really good opportunity so you know um, i don't think i don't think we will lose salmon here if we don't want to
0: You've been listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Over this first season, we'll speak with those on the ground working every day to ensure a future for Skeena salmon, the people behind the science that are increasing our awareness and understanding of one of the last intact salmon watersheds in the world, and what responsible development could look like. We'll also dive into what makes the Skeena such a significant and unique environment and how Indigenous nations and local communities are pulling out all the stops to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future here. If you want to hear more, check out skeenawild.org or subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget, tell your friends. Thanks for listening.